And for the rest of us, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up uh, to Mark. We're continuing in Mark chapter 12 this morning, um, Jesus' final week in Jerusalem. We uh, catch another. This also takes place on Wednesday, like, uh, or Tuesday. Yeah, it's Tuesday. Um, the last couple uh, passages have as well. Um, this morning's passage is, is um, immediately following last week's trap, if you remember last week's trap uh, between uh, Jesus and this trap set by the, the Pharisees. Um, this passage has to do with another group, uh, uh, another Jewish sect, the Sadducees, and we're going to learn a little bit more about them uh, this morning. So uh, we're going to go ahead and dive into God's Word. Um, Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 18. And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman herself died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, Whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as, her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider this passage this morning, we first pause now and ask for forgiveness for the ways that we do not know the scriptures as well as we ought. We ask that you would forgive us for the ways that we, rather than than running to your power, as a place of refuge and a confidence in this world, that we doubt your strength. And God, we ask that as we open your word this morning, your spirit would give us eyes to see the majesty of Christ, his beauty and his glory. God, that we would see your marvelous power at work in this gospel and in our lives. We ask that you would help us this morning, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we, uh, or as I was studying this passage this past week, I was struck by how similar the Sadducees' view of the resurrection is to many um, ways that people view the afterlife and the ways that people view um, the resurrection today in our culture. The Sadducees um, were abundantly cynical. And I don't know if there's a better word to describe our own culture um, other than the word cynical today. This notion of a resurrection can seem absolutely ridiculous to many, and perhaps some of us this morning even feel that way. That even in our darkest moments, we wonder, can this really be true? Now, we can find some relief this morning that this cynicism uh, about the resurrection, this skepticism, is not new. Many in the first century also did not believe in the resurrection. They saw it as absolutely unthinkable. Gentiles 
When they heard the idea of the resurrection and the gospel, most of them, or many of them, first responded with ridicule. They responded with mockery because it was such a ridiculous idea. 1 Corinthians, Paul is referring to this skepticism around the resurrection, that Jesus was crucified and then rose from the dead, when he says that Christ crucified is this folly to the Gentiles. And for many throughout history, the idea of resurrection is just far-fetched, and it's, not, it's too unrealistic to be real. Now notice, it's not just the, the idea of life after death that is far-fetched for many, but it's this idea of a bodily resurrection. That's what's in view here. That's what Jesus is talking about here. The Greeks of the first century had no problem in believing in the afterlife, but they did take issue with the idea that God would raise our bodies and that we would live forever in our bodies. This is important for us to remember as well. The prevailing notion of the afterlife today in America is this idea that when we die, we go to heaven and we live forever as a disembodied spirit. And that does a great disservice to the message of the gospel, to the promise that we find in the gospel. Let me, let me explain. About a month ago, uh, so many of you know I teach the junior high um, Sunday school class with, um, with Nate McCormick, and we were talking about this idea of resurrection, and we were talking about this idea of eternity and the afterlife, and I asked the students a question. I said, <clears throat> excuse me, I didn't choke when I said it. <clears throat> Funny enough, I was just talking to the worship team before the service about how I always choke and how I haven't done it for a while, and now I'm doing it right now. <sighs> Shame on me. All right. Um, <clears throat> I asked the students this question. I said, be honest. Even if you like singing, does the idea of spending forever, eternity, sitting on a cloud, singing songs, does that bore you? And in that class, just as I would imagine, is the same way in our gathering this morning. There are some people here who like singing, some people here who, who tolerate it and just see it as something that you are supposed to do. But even those of us in that class that, that love music thought that the idea of sitting on a cloud for forever wasn't exactly the most thrilling thing to be doing for the rest of all eternity. And that's why the message of the resurrection is so important for us to cling to today. Salvation doesn't just mean that our souls are, are safe. It means that one day God is going to give us our bodies back. And those bodies are going to be without any flaws. They're going to be beyond the reach of decay. In other words, you're not just a soul that has a body. You are both a soul and a body. And that's how God made you. And that's God's intention for all of eternity. The idea of resurrection, far better news than the idea of, of eternity as a disembodied spirit. Spirit. That means for all of eternity, I will get to experience the best things of my life right now. The taste of food, the smell of flowers, the awe-inspiring moments of creation, the feelings of endorphins after a good workout, the uh, beauty uh, of exploring creation, gardening, working with my hands, making music, being active, embracing others. All of these things require a body. And God is going to give us bodies for all eternity. What an incredible 
thought. To have perfected bodies to do each of these things. This is why this passage is so important. It's not primarily an apologetic about the resurrection, although it does talk about the importance of the resurrection. Jesus doesn't mince words here. He, he doesn't shy away from this topic. He, he is very upfront about what the Bible says, what he believes about resurrection. And we would do well to listen to Jesus. What a, what a radical thought, right? We would do well to listen to Jesus and what he has to say on this topic. After all, in the midst of hardships and in the midst of trials, whatever they may be in your life, it is the promise of resurrection, of spending forever as a body and a soul, as a body and a spirit with God in the new creation that is the foundation of hope that will help us to endure whatever life may throw at us. And that's the main point of this passage. Right here at the very beginning, I just want to make that abundantly clear what this passage is saying that the lasting hope is found in the promise of resurrection. Lasting hope, eternal hope, is found in the promise of resurrection. Resurrection isn't some add-on that's optional to the message of the gospel. It's the foundation. It's what Jesus has come to do for us. It's so important that Paul writes, when he's writing to the church in, in Corinth, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Lasting hope is found in the promise of resurrection. I just want to give you one example of that uh, from this past week. Have you ever noticed that the stock market is actually a really good indication of whether people are optimistic or pessimistic about the future? If people are thinking that things are going to be going well, then the stock market rises, and if people think that things are going poorly, then the stock market generally will follow. Now, the stock market took its largest hit since 2008 this past week. Does anyone know why? Because of the coronavirus, right? COVID-19, what, what's commonly known as the coronavirus. As it's found in more and more places around the globe, there's this increasing concern about the future. There's this increasing concern about whether business will, will there be disruptions to business? Will there be uh, an, an undue hardship on different nations? And the bottom of the stock market actually kind of fell out this past week. Now, I want you to think about if you had placed your hope in the desire to live a nice long life, or if you had placed your hope in this desire to retire well, to enjoy your golden years the results of, these past, of this past week would be troubling, to say the very least. It would cause a great deal of stress and anxiety to us. There is a great deal of uncertainty of what the next few weeks and months hold for us. And not just for us, but people around the globe. And, and many of you here this morning may have lost a great deal of money in the last few days because of this, from your retirement. Now these things, this desire to live a long and healthy life, they're not bad desires, but if they are the source of hope that gets you through each and every day, we were given a very good example of how fleeting that hope is, of just how imperfect it is. Lasting hope is not found in the promise of a good life. Lasting hope is not found in the promise or the, this commitment in the American dream. It's not found in health or even safety. Lasting hope is found in the promise of the resurrection and in that promise alone. 
And so with that in mind, I just want us to take a few moments to work our way through this passage. If you've been with us for the last month or two, you can probably guess, because this is another confrontation story between Jesus and the religious leaders. And it seems like the exact same structure has been uh, the case for the last couple uh, passages we've looked through. There is this conflict, and the religious leaders ask Jesus a question, and then that is followed with Jesus's response. So let's go ahead and jump into this passage again and consider both of these parts of this passage. First, the question in verses 18 through 23. And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. And the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, one of the things that we notice when we first read this passage is the heart posture of the Pharisees, right? It's, it's right here at the very beginning in verse 18. When they're asking this question, they're not coming to Jesus with pure motives. They're not coming because they earnestly desire to hear his opinion on this topic. They are coming because they want to discredit him. They don't believe in the resurrection. They're not saying, all right, Jesus, you need to actually help us understand this. We're coming with an open mind. No, they, they want to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the crowd. They want to embarrass Jesus. That's why in my notes, as I was writing, uh, taking some notes on this passage, I wrote their question kind of like this. How can anyone possibly think there is a resurrection? That gets at the heart of their attitude here. Mark gives us this parenthetical comment here at the very beginning that the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They thought that anyone who believed in the resurrection was a fool. This question that they ask isn't asked in good faith. It's, it's asked with a sneer. It's asked with a mocking tone. Are you really foolish enough to believe that there is a resurrection? Now, before we go any further, let's just talk briefly about who the Sadducees are because we haven't encountered them yet in the Gospel of Mark. Josephus is a very important name if you're studying uh, ancient Near Eastern um, history. Josephus was this Jewish historian from the first century. So he was actually alive during the time of Jesus um, and writing about things in the first century. And he said that the Sadducees were these men of rank, that they were concerned with wealth. In other words, they were the ruling elites of the day. They were the aristocrats of the first century. The chief priests all were from this party, the Sadducees. A few weeks ago, we talked about this ruling council in Jerusalem called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was made up of different people or different groups, um, but the, the majority of the Sanhedrin was actually made up of Sadducees. This is a very small group, percentage-wise, in the nation of Israel, and yet they held a dis disproportionate uh, amount of power in the first century. Now, because they were in places of power in the first century, they liked the status quo. They actually liked that they were on top, and they didn't really care for those who would change that and threaten their power base. And so they were uh, actually pretty in favor of Roman rule because of how it benefited them. They were considered arrogant. They were proud. And so their actions toward Jesus here, not, not terribly surprising. Now, as, as Mark notes, they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't see the resurrection as something that is true. The Sadducees were actually theologically conservative. Uh, they believed that they were the ones who, who held to the originals of the Jewish faith, 
unlike people like the Pharisees who added things like the resurrection. The, the reason why they, they believe this is another example. Uh, we see this from Acts as Paul is um, facing trial, just kind of like Jesus is. He, he's, uh, Acts, Luke tells us that, that the Sadducees don't believe in angels. They don't believe in demons. They, they believe that God is supernatural, but nothing else is. They're very, very earthly-minded people. What you see is what you get. And the reason why is because they thought that the only real Bible was the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, Penta for five. Uh, this is a description. Uh, this is what they believed was Scripture. And, then, and when they looked at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they didn't see any evidence for these types of things. They didn't see any evidence for the resurrection. They didn't see any evidence for the supernatural beyond God himself. So the Sadducees, when they come to Jesus, they they bring this question, and they think that they have foolproof evidence of why it is ridiculous to believe in the resurrection. And so they bring Jesus this question that is based out of something called leverate marriage, and something that we see in the Old Testament. Now, some of you are going to find this really interesting. Some of you won't find it interesting at all. Most of you are probably somewhere in between. So I'm going to be really... um, uh, brief with this. The word lever it comes from the Latin word lever, not like a lever that you pull, L-E-V-I-R, which means brother-in-law. And so this, this rule was concerned with taking care of family when there was no heir present. Deuteronomy chapter 25 actually gives us Moses' command. It says this, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife and perform the duty of the husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. In other words, what this passage is saying is that the the first child of this marriage would actually be credited to the deceased family. This was, uh, there were multiple factors in, in play here. One of them is just this genuine concern for the wife of this deceased brother. It is the responsibility of the family to provide for them. And this is, you know, far be, before Medicare, far before Social Security. The best way to ensure that there was someone there to take care of you in your old age was to have children who would do that. But second, there is this concern for the inheritance of the deceased, and that's what we see specifically here in Deuteronomy chapter 25. There is this concern that the inheritance of this deceased brother would not disappear, that God had promised his people, God had promised all of his people a part in the land. And this practice was one of the ways to make sure that those who had fallen on hard times, that they had gotten sick and died, that they weren't taken advantage of by wealthy neighbors who would buy up all of their land and remove any future chance of children or of the family of having their own part in the promise that God had made for the land of Israel. Now, we're not going to do it now, but I encourage you this afternoon to grab your Bibles and read the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is this short story, only four chapters, and it's a beautiful picture of what this actually looks like. Ruth's husband as well as Ruth's brother-in-law, both die. But back in Bethlehem, 
there is a family member, a relative, who can fulfill this role of the lever at marriage, and his name is Boaz. And it is this powerful picture of how God provides for his people, how God creates these commands, he creates these systems in the Old Testament to make sure that he takes care of those who are vulnerable. Now, this is the command that the Sadducees have in mind when they bring Jesus this question. So they come up with this somewhat ridiculous, farcical story. They say, Jesus, let's suppose there's a man who has seven sons, and the first son marries a woman, and then he dies before they have any children. And so being a good brother, the second son takes her as wife, but they don't have any children either. He dies as well, and it goes all the way down the line to the seventh, all of them dying without a child. Now, you believe in the resurrection, which we don't, of course, believe in. So if you believe in the resurrection, answer us this question. Whose wife will she be? Who will she be married to? It sets the stage for this question. This, now, now, Jesus, you believe in the resurrection, but who is she going to be married to? You can almost hear the smugness radiating out of this question, can't you? Jesus, don't you just see how ridiculous this idea of resurrection is? Why on earth would anyone ever believe in it? We know it can't be true. In fact, God's word tells us that it can't be true because it tells us how to take care of those who are deceased in this life. And in their opinion, they have Jesus trapped. They got Jesus right where they want him. I'm sure they had trapped many Pharisees in this way before. Jesus has a few options. He can say, first, you know, I don't know. That's a good question. I haven't really worked that one out. By doing that, he's going to discredit the idea of a resurrection, to say nothing of himself. Or Jesus can say, hey, don't worry about leveret marriage anymore. Let's focus instead on this idea of resurrection, and then he's going to undermine his commitment to Scripture. Now, before we jump in, I do think it's interesting that the Pharisees were asked this question all the time by Sadducees. And Sadducees always thought that they got the best of the Pharisees because the Pharisees, when they answered, they would say, well, the first wife or the first husband would be the person who would be married to this woman in the resurrection. There was this understanding, this this idea that the resurrection life is exactly the same as this life today. How is Jesus going to respond? The trap is set. Uh, Notice how Jesus responds. It's absolutely fascinating, not because of how he avoids the the trap, even though that's true, but just because of how blunt he is with the Sadducees here. His response centers around two rebukes, and these are really powerful rebukes, really important for us to take home as well. First, he draws attention to their lack of understanding of God's Word. They just don't understand God's Word. And then he also draws attention to their lack of faith in God's power. Notice verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, all too often when we get things wrong, when it comes to God, these are the two areas where we mess up. It's a lack of understanding of God's word or this wrong understanding of God's word. And then also a lack of faith in God, in his power in his ability to do exactly what he says he will do. And so for the Sadducees, they thought that they had this foolproof argument that they were being faithful to Scripture, and yet Jesus perceives 
that the reason why they are wrong is not because of some intellectual argument, but at its core, they are wrong because it's a lack of faith. It's a lack of faith that God is the type of God who is able to raise the dead. The notion of resurrection, completely unbelievable to them, not because they had diligently searched the scriptures and concluded that this was a man-made invention, but because in spite of what they read in the Bible, they concluded, you know what, that can't be true of God. That's not true of God. God is not a resurrecting God. And behind the veneer of this cleverly worded argument, there's this heart of unbelief in who God is. Who God is. At its core, it's an unbelief in the resurrection, but even even deeper than that, it is an unbelief in God's power. One of my favorite verses in the book of Acts comes when uh, the Apostle Paul is set on trial, and he's trying to defend his belief in the resurrection before the Jews, and he says this, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? What a powerful statement, right? When we struggle with this idea of resurrection, it's really at its core a a struggle with with God. This unbelief in in God being able to actually do that. Paul is on trial for his belief in the resurrection found in Jesus, and Paul exposes the root of the problem. For those of us who struggle with the resurrection, it's uh, it's an insufficient understanding of who God is. Is God the type of God who is able to do this type of thing? The issue at stake here isn't primarily the resurrection. The issue at stake is God himself. If God is able to do what he says he is able to do, if God is actually who he says he is, then we shouldn't be surprised that he is able to raise the dead. After all, didn't God make man out of dirt once? And he can sure do it again. You see, at its core, this question of resurrection is a question about God's power. Isn't the same thing true today? The cynicism that we see in our culture, isn't it ultimately a lack of belief in who God is and what God is able to do? At the heart of every objection to the gospel today, it's not some intellectual hurdle, but fundamentally, it's a heart that says no. No, thank you, God. Unbelief is the primary stumbling block for people across the globe. For every single person who has not come to faith, even for those who do come to faith, unbelief is the number one stumbling block for us. We may cover it up cleverly with these worded arguments. We may even have convinced ourselves that, you know what, if God would have just given me a little bit more evidence in creation, then I would believe. But that's, at its core, that is not the problem. God is not fooled. Jesus is not fooled in this passage. It's an unbelief in who God is. And it comes from a lack of understanding of God's word. Now, let's just set aside for a moment the Sadducees' mistaken belief that the first five books of the Old Testament are the only legitimate uh, parts of the Old Testament. Even if that were true, which it's not, even if that were true, they still did not understand these books because if they would have, then they would have understood the resurrection. 
The rest of Jesus' response to them gives us evidence of their lack of knowledge of God's word. First, he addresses marriage in verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus first says, hey, you know what? Your, your question is relatively irrelevant because your understanding of the resurrection life is fundamentally flawed. It's not just like life on this earth and in this life now on repeat forever. In the resurrection, there is no marriage. And people get confused about why this is the case. And they run to all sorts of odd explanations in order to explain this. And so we see some people say that, that we become angels. No, that's not what the passage says. Because as we become like angels, that we are, do not get married just like the angels do not. Some say, well, you know, this means that we become genderless in heaven, in, in the new creation. But that, of course, isn't right either because we receive resurrection bodies. So why is there no marriage in the life to come? Before we get to that, I just want to throw something out there that many of you may be thinking. Um, I'll be honest, when I read this verse, I don't really care for it all that much. I love my wife, Crystal, dearly, and even though I love Jesus, even though I long for the resurrection, I long for the age to come, this is, this is a hard thing to hear. There are many passages, many things that Jesus says that are called hard sayings of Jesus. It's okay if you think this is a hard saying of Jesus, to not fully understand what he is saying. And, and, and Crystal and I, we've been married for eight and a half years. She's, let me do the math here. Yeah, we've been married for eight and a half years. I said that with confidence the first time, just so you know. And I can't even fathom for those of you who have been married for decades, uh, and this person has made you a better person, been a huge part of your spiritual growth for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And, and I just want to say, it's an okay place to be. That's an okay place to be. It's an okay thing to consider this a hard saying of Jesus, not because of a place of unbelief, but because of a lack of perspective. We know what life is like now. We know good gifts that God has given to us, and God hasn't given us all that much information about what life will be like in the new creation. And in large part, it is still a mystery. We have, we have glimpses, but nothing fully concrete like we do have now. And so it's okay to hear Jesus' words here and say, Ooh, that's hard. That's hard to understand. But just because it's tough doesn't mean that God hasn't given us an answer. First, we can be assured that we're going to still know loved ones in the age to come. King David, when his son died, he comforted himself during that death by saying, you know what, there's a future day where I'm going to get to see him again. Paul tells us when he's writing to Christians, he says, hey, don't grieve like the way other people grieve because you can be assured that when Jesus returns, they're coming back with him if they place their trust in him. So we can, we can have this confidence that we are going to know other people, that we're going to know our loved ones still in the new creation, that there will be this future day of reunion, and yet we can also say, hey, you know what, I haven't given, been given the whole picture. Much of what life is like in the new creation left a mystery to us, and yet we can be confident that the God who gives good gifts now is not going to take those types of gifts away without giving something even greater and even better. 
And that statement hints at why there is no marriage in the life to come. Because from the very beginning, now hear that, from the very beginning, God intended marriage to be temporary. Lifelong, but not eternal. God intended for every marriage to be temporary. It's a picture given to people to show what God's love for his people is like. Consider Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 5. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It's one of the most astounding passages in the Bible. Paul is giving instructions to husbands and wives on how to interact with one another and how the way they live their lives is meant to model how Christ loves his people to everyone around them. And if you're married, your marriage is intended to be a picture of Jesus and the church. Whether you're Christian or not, that's true. Whether you do a good job at it or not, that is true. Your marriage is meant to be a picture of Christ and the church, but that's not all. Notice verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, Paul here is quoting from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. First marriage in the Bible, this is the uniting of Adam and Eve. They are joined together. If you were to, in fact, because it's the first marriage, it is actually meant to describe all of these marriages that we see today. It's God's intention for marriage. And if you were to look or if you were to ask a hundred different people who understood their Bibles, who understood how to read context, and you would say, okay, what does Genesis 2.24 mean? In its context, they would say it is about marriage between a man and a woman. But notice what Paul says in verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. This mystery, what mystery? He's talking about this mystery of what God is doing in a marriage between two people when he makes them one. And he says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to newly married couples? No, to Christ and the church. So here's what the Bible teaches us doesn't say that God was looking for a metaphor for his relationship to the church and said, hey, you know what? There's a lot of people out there that are getting married. That's actually a really good picture of what I am going to do for my people. So let's go ahead and just use that. That's a good, good optional add-on or an unintended side effect for what I did with creating marriage. That's not what God says. The foundational reason that marriage exists is to show people, help them understand what is going to come in the new creation. The fundamental reason marriage exists is to help people begin to understand, begin to grasp the relationship between God and his people. And if that is the primary reason, 
to help us understand God's love for his people, then is marriage necessary? When we get to that moment, when we get to the moment where God's, marriage, God's relationship, his, his, his covenant, his marriage with his people is fully consummated in the new creation, the answer is no. As good of a signpost as it may be, it is just a signpost. It is pointing us to a future glory that awaits us. And so if you're married, cherish your marriage. Enjoy it as a good gift, but don't enjoy it at the, at the expense of the marriage that is to come. The marriage supper of the Lamb is how the end of Revelation is described. It is this marriage between Christ and his church. And if you're not married, whether it's because you are divorced, divorced or you've lost a spouse or you've, you've never been married, then, then don't believe that your life is, is unfulfilling and that it's incomplete just because you haven't gotten married. Now, there's nothing wrong with, with seeking marriage. It's a good gift. But it is also a good gift in spite of what our culture says and honestly, in spite of what the church often says, uh, unfortunately. It is okay, it is a good gift to skip the signpost and jump right to the greater reality. I spent way too much time on that. Um, I wasn't intending to spend that much time on the idea of, of marriage here. Um, so let's go ahead and wrap up the rest of this text a little more quickly. Verse 25, Jesus describes, or he's referring to the Sadducees and their lack of understanding about God's word when it comes to marriage. And then in 26 and 27, he says, you know what, you don't understand God's word when it comes to resurrection. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now notice what Jesus does here. There are many passages in the Old Testament that speak of resurrection a whole lot more clearly than this. Jesus could have gone to Daniel 12 too. He could have gone to Job 19, 26. He could have gone to a number of different passages in the book of Isaiah, and yet he decides to go to Exodus. Why is that? Well, it's because his Sadducees that he's talking with only saw this as scripture, unlike those other passages. And so Jesus says, hey, you guys, you know, you know the passage about the bush in the book Moses wrote? And, and just a side note, this is before chapters and verses were written. And so if you ever, ever fail to remember where exactly a verse is in the Bible, it, Jesus did it, it's okay. You can just say, hey, you know what? That, when, when Paul says in Romans that thing, if Jesus did it, you can do it too, all right? So just, just a, a side note there. Anyway, uh, Jesus says, hey, you know that passage in the book of Exodus where uh, God is talking to Moses with the burning bush. And they're like, yeah, sure. He's, he's referring to Exodus chapter 3, 6, because we have chapters and verses. God is calling Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, and he's reminding Moses of the covenant of the relationship that he has with his ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says this, and he, God, said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Jesus' uh, argument here is just absolutely astounding for several reasons. Notice that his argument hinges on verb tense. That, that verb tense is inspired. He refers back to the Old Testament and says, hey, God didn't introduce himself to Moses by saying, 
I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in other words, even though they died a, a long time ago, I'm still their God. And the implication? They're still alive. Now here's why this is astounding. First, not directly related to Jesus' argument here, but so important for us, we see Jesus' incredibly high view of Scripture here, don't we? That Jesus took Scripture so seriously, he saw all of it as inspired by God, and all of it was authoritative, even a verb tense. And there is this, mo- this movement in the church today to just doubt the authority of God's word. And some people will even go as far as saying like, well, the, the understanding of inerrancy, the understanding of authority, those are just modern concepts, inventions. We need to start reading the Bible like Jesus. Okay, we'll start reading the Bible like Jesus. You have to take it a whole lot more seriously because Jesus saw all of it as inspired and authoritative. Second, this isn't just an argument based off of verb tense. It's also an argument based off of this special relationship that we see between God and the fathers of the people of Israel. When God calls Abraham to follow him, he says that he's going to make him great. He's going to make him the father of many nations. And he says all of the nations of the world will be blessed through Abraham. And you know what happens? Abraham dies before those promises fully come to pass. Now, we see some partial fulfillment of that, certainly. But we don't see the fulfillment at the level that you would expect. If God is making a promise to someone, we would expect something a lot greater than what we see in the book of Genesis. And the same is true for Isaac. And the same is true for Jacob. But by declaring, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God is saying, I'm not done yet. I have not forgotten my promise to them, and there is a day that is coming where it will be fully realized. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they knew this. The book of Hebrews makes it very clear to us. It says this, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, as it is they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. They died in faith. They died still looking for what God had promised to them. They hadn't yet fully received it from God, and yet they waited for a newer and better country. How does the Bible prove resurrection? Well, because God has made some promises, and they haven't come to pass. And this really comes back to what Jesus said as one of the issues of the Sadducees. They don't believe in the power of God. God has made promises, and they didn't believe that God would actually come through on those. And yet God is not done. God is not done with Abraham. God is not done with Isaac. God is not done with with Jacob. God is not done with you either. God has made a promise, and God is a God who keeps his promises. Plain and simple, God is a God worth trusting. And that's the focus of this passage. A few moments ago, I said the idea of resurrection, it hinges on this special relationship between God and his people. He's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And even those who have died, if they are found in Christ, they are still alive, and they will one day receive a resurrection body to dwell with him forever. 
and the clearest evidence for the resurrection is not found in the Old Testament. It's found in the moment where God kept those promises. It was found in the death and resurrection of Jesus himself. Lasting hope is found in the promise of the resurrection. We can be sure of our own resurrection if we're found in Christ because of Christ's own resurrection. Here in a few moments, we're going to remember that death and that resurrection and the partaking of communion. See, hours before Jesus' death, he shares a meal with his disciples and said he's going to make them a new covenant. He's going to make them a new promise. And it's going to be found in his blood. The bread and the cup that we're about to partake of, they are a memory of that covenant. They are a declaration of hope. I don't know if there is a greater way for us to, to profess in a way that is very tangible for everyone to see this morning that we believe in the resurrection than by grabbing that bread and grabbing that cup and partaking. It is a declaration just like for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you know what God's promises have not fully come to pass, but I know that they will because he is a faithful, trustworthy God. Lasting hope is found in the promise of the resurrection that God will always keep his promises because that's who he is. He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. And though we may die, we can live in Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this passage We thank you for the way that it reminds us of the great confidence that we can have in you because of what you have done for us on the cross. And God, I ask that you would forgive us in moments of, cyn uh, of cynicism in our own lives, of skepticism and of unbelief where we just wonder, is this all really true? We ask that you would forgive us and help us to remember that you are a God who keeps his promises, and you are a God that is worth trusting. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.